The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. Treasury Secretary of State Antony Blinken downplays the chances of a breakthrough in Russian talks as the two sides gear up for a crucial week of diplomacy. The talks mass, the troops massed on the Ukrainian border. The question really now is uh, whether uh, President Putin will take the path of diplomacy and dialogue or uh, seeks confrontation. China steps up its zero-COVID approach, mass testing 14 million people in just two days amid an outbreak in the northern city of Tianjin, just an hour from the capital. Very good morning, everybody. U.S. hiring underwhelms as December payrolls come in weaker than expected, but the unemployment rate falls. Attention now turning to Fed Chair Jerome Powell's testimony as well as key inflation data due this week. And BPER over in Italy has reportedly bettered its offer for struggling lender Carige in a bid to fend off interest from Credit Agricole. Sir, very warm welcome to this Monday edition of Squawk Box. Nice to see you, uh, Karen. Uh, Happy New Year to you and nice to see you too, Steve. And glad that we are all back together, although, of course, somewhat distanced at this point. Let's let's plough on then. Let's talk about the uh, latest on these US-Russia talks. Uh, US and Russian officials are gathering in Geneva today to kick off a series of high-stakes talks over the situation in Ukraine and ultimately the road ahead for security in Europe. However, both sides have already warned prospects for a resolution are low, with NATO's chief even warning it's prepared for conflict as Russia builds up its forces on the Ukraine border. Well, speaking to ABC News in the United States on Sunday, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said he doesn't expect to see any progress in relations with Russia as long as tensions on the Ukraine border remain high. If we're actually going to make progress in these talks, uh, starting next week, but I, I don't think we're going to see any breakthroughs next week, we're going to listen to their concerns, they'll listen to our concerns, and we'll see if they're grounds for progress. But to make actual progress, it's very hard to see that happening when uh, there's an ongoing escalation, when Russia has a gun to the head of Ukraine with 100,000 troops near its borders, the possibility of uh, doubling that on very short order. So if we're seeing uh, de-escalation, if we're seeing a reduction in tensions, that is the kind of environment in which we could make real progress and, again, address concerns, uh, reasonable concerns on both sides. Meanwhile, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister and lead negotiator Sergei Rybakov says he's disappointed by early signals from Washington and NATO, but insists Moscow would not be making concessions or bow to U.S. pressure in the talks. Well, let's get out to Hadley for more. Hadley, the language is increasing here. What's President Putin angling at as he uh, issues these, these demands to NATO and its allies? 
That's the big question, isn't it, Karen? It's the one that everybody's asking, essentially, what is President Putin really, really up to? Is it worth a conflict, if you will, given uh, what's happening uh, to him at home in terms of the economy of Russia, an economy, as we all know, that is you know, smaller than the size of California? Um, he wants to sell his gas. He wants to sell his oil. He wants to remain, of course, uh, as part of the international financial system. He wants to remain as part of the SWIFT system. And if he were, in fact, to invade Ukraine, um, Western nations, NATO nations, the United States have vowed that the sanctions would be unprecedented. Now, thinking about what potentially could be accomplished over the next couple of days, it's a bigger question, right? We've already seen U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken there essentially downplaying the possibility of much progress. Essentially, the Russian president has demanded sweeping um, security guarantees. And one of them, of course, is he wants to make sure that Ukraine and other nations will not be folded into the to the bow of NATO. He wants to make sure that there will be no more NATO expansion in his neighborhood. Now, of course, uh, the NATO Secretary General at the end of the last year poo-pooed that notion in his interview with me. He said that's something that's a non-starter for him. Um, the Secretary of State of the United States has, has echoed that sentiment as well. Um, and the Ukrainian Foreign Minister, when I spoke to him just a couple of weeks ago, said, you know, that's not something that's on the table. And had we already been a member of NATO, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. So some of the things that uh, Mr. Blinken has said are at least reasonable asks at this point. We're talking about missile deployments. That's a big question, right? Whether or not um, Russia might be uh, involved in whether or not NATO nations, the United States, would put forward missiles in countries along their border, in sensitive areas, if you will. Another thing that Mr. Blinken suggested in his interview on Sunday was that there is a conversation that could be had about being more transparent about um, NATO exercises, where they would take place, how many troops there would be. Um, and, you know, that's a sensitive issue, obviously, for the Russians, and it's a sensitive issue for NATO members, as well as non-NATO members in, in Nordic countries, um, when the Russians are, are playing their war games as well. So a couple of things that they think could, could create a sense of at least balance and maybe cohesion in terms of um, a sense of comfort ground, if you will. But the big question, of course, remains, this is a man, this is a president who has over 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. What is he going to do with them? Listen into what Fred Kemp had to say earlier when I asked him, you know, if all politics is about perception, who is winning the perception game? Listen in. Europe's history knows the, the, the despots uh, threatening against more benevolent actors. We've seen this picture before. But we have to remind people and show who really is the aggressor here. So it's an information game. But at the same time, Putin can take military action if he wants to. We are really on the cusp of war. If he wants war to happen, Putin can make it happen. It would hurt Russia terribly. Uh, it would hurt Europe uh, irretrievably. It would set the generation up for a real problem, uh, the next generation for Europe. Uh, it's really a dramatic week. It may be the most important week for President Biden of his entire presidency from a foreign policy perspective. In terms of a rundown, what we're potentially seeing today around 8.40 a.m. local time, uh, the Russians are expected to arrive at the U.S. Consul for the beginning of conversations. Later today, they'll be holding a press conference um, from their venue here in Geneva. And then later today, Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State, is expected to hold a briefing with reporters and, of course, will be on that call. Um, in terms of what happens next throughout the week, as you know, these leaders, NATO will be gathering uh, in Brussels on Wednesday for a beginning of talks with Russia as well. And then I'll be headed to Ukraine at the end of the week to talk to the foreign minister about their thoughts. Uh, given everything that uh, may or may not be decided in the coming days. Guys? Yeah, Hadley, let me just pick up for a moment. I'm, I'm very interested as well uh, in hearing a, a little bit about um, the Russia-Kazakhstan angle because it, it was notable, I think, that Sen Secretary Blinken uh, was uh, tweeting over the weekend as well about this. And I, I just wonder if it... 
if it comes into the discussions at all at any level, um, I, clearly the Americans are uh, taking note of uh, what Russian elements may be moving into Kazakhstan at the moment in support of the government there. But do you think it comes up? I would be surprised if it didn't, Jeff. I mean, essentially, Mr. Blinken's saying, you know, when the Russians move into a country, they generally, um, you can't get them out very easily, is I think the comment. And he also said, you know, the shoot to kill order is something that we fundamentally disagree with on every level. Um, bigger questions, of course, as to, you know, obviously we saw this um, play in the oil market, play in the price just a bit. But also, of course, what this means for President Putin's calculus at this point in terms of his sphere of influence. If this is for him um, at 69 years of age, all about projecting, you know, power, projecting uh, this Russian sphere of influence, he's got trouble in his own backyard. So even if the answer to him seemingly is to put some troops there, at least for the short to medium term, one wonders if this encourages um, elements of dissent elsewhere. Hadley, thank you very much indeed. Looking forward to coverage throughout the next couple of days. Uh, and just uh, a little web tease for you. Atlantic Council, Council President Fred Kemp says security in Europe hangs in the balance ahead of this week's talks. Uh, you can read his op-ed uh, online at cnbc.com. Now, Jeff was mentioning uh, Kazakhstan with Hadley just there. The government there is taking on a new look. Uh, President uh, Tokayev has sacked top security officials after the recent unrest, which has seen at least 164 killed and thousands arrested. New government members are expected to be announced tomorrow amid speculation of a rift in the ruling elite. Now, authorities say the situation is stabilizing after Russian troops were called in to help quell violent protests and the Kazakh president issued a shoot-to-kill order. Russian President Vladimir Putin will hold talks with his Kazakh counterpart today. But Tokayev says terrorists, uh, groups trained outside the country, are responsible uh, for the violence and that Russian troops will not be needed for long. Well, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, sounded a warning, though, suggesting that may not be the case. I would not conflate these situations. Um, there are very particular drivers of uh, what's happening in Kazakhstan right now, as I said, that go to uh, economic and, and political matters. Uh, and what's happening in uh, there is different from what's happening uh, on Ukraine's borders. Um, having said that, I think one uh, lesson of recent history is that uh, once uh, Russians are in your house, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to leave. And the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg uh, says NATO and its allies are following the situation closely and regrets the loss of life. It's important that violence ends and that human rights are respected, including the right of peaceful demonstration and freedom of expression. And, uh, and many allies have expressed this, and I expressed this as Secretary General of NATO, uh, that uh, uh, we are uh, following closely and uh, concerned about the situation and the need to, to end violence and respect human rights in Kazakhstan. Coming up on the show, cryptocurrency markets continue to be under pressure amid hawkish Fed comments and the political crisis in Kazakhstan. We'll have more on what to expect from the price volatility right after the break. Plus, for more on the high-stakes uh, talks going on between the US and Russia, as well as the ongoing crisis in Kazakhstan, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back, everybody. Let's update you then on the latest on the Omicron stories. The Chinese city of Tianjin has tightened travel restrictions for its 14 million residents after more than 20 locally transmitted coronavirus cases were detected over the weekend. People trying to leave the city, which is just southeast of Beijing, now require employer approval and a negative test within 48 hours of departure. The restrictions come on top of a citywide testing drive as China doubles down on its zero-COVID approach in the weeks leading up to the Winter Olympics. This as the announcement comes of two confirmed Omicron cases in the southern city of Shenzhen, dampening hopes for a full reopening of the border with Hong Kong. A Cypriot researcher has discovered a coronavirus strain that combines the Omicron and Delta variants, according to reports. However, scientists have cast doubt on the discovery dubbed Deltacron, suggesting it's a result of contamination in the lab. Elsewhere, more than 100,000 people joined protests against the introduction of a new coronavirus pass in France over the weekend, as a new draft law threatens a de facto ban on unvaccinated people from public life. The bill passed its first reading in the French Parliament on Thursday, and if enacted, uh, would do away with the option of showing a negative COVID test to access public venues. In the United States, the Supreme Court looks set to deal another blow to President Biden's COVID agenda as its conservative majority gears up to reject plans for a vaccine or testing requirement for large businesses, a mandate which would impact 80 million people. Uh, Trump nominee Amy Cohen, Coney Barrett, I should say, uh, suggested the rule is too broad. And on a programming note, don't miss our US colleagues' coverage of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, where later today they will speak to leaders, including Albert Bula and Stanley Erk. Jeff. Uh, Novak Djokovic's appeal against the cancellation of his Australian visa continues in court today as the men's tennis world number one fights for his place in the Australian Open. His lawyers argue border officials didn't give valid notice of the government's intention to cancel his visa, while authorities insist Djokovic's recent infection did not make him eligible for entry. Well, Djokovic risks a second visa cancellation, even if the court rules in his favour. And Karen, I think one thing we all know 
on this show is you just don't mess with the Australians. Yeah, especially at the border, I've got to say. I think we've all seen some of the uh, scenes from uh, the security there and you don't want to be taking in anything that's unusual or not cooked or processed effectively. And, of course, you want to be ticking the boxes on those uh, border forms too for, for visa control. Let me just get to the market action. There's been a huge focus in recent sessions around everything that effectively leads back to monetary policy. It was the non-farm payrolls report Friday with saw a slip in the unemployment rate to 3.9%. That was a huge focus, along with the escalation in the average hourly wages. Even though we had a miss on the headline, that was a little bit confusing for some market participants to see some weakness in that number. But it does point to the Fed having a very tight labour market to contend with. And don't forget, uh, that's the other part of the mandate, away from just inflation, just what that labour market looks like. And we could be fairly close to full employment. So that's a huge factor for the market. We'll be listing in for language from Jay Powell and some of the other Fed members this week when they speak. Also, the inflation numbers midweek. Headline act for this market now, 5.4% expected across on Wednesday. So we'll be closely tracking those numbers. In the meantime, you can see markets continue to take stock. We've seen in particular the Nasdaq weather a fairly strong storm. It's been one of the worst trading weeks since February for the Nasdaq. The retreat, 144 points in session or close to 1% over the course of the trading week. There were a lot of big name stocks to the downside. The likes of Apple, one of the better performers for the markets, was moving south. Tesla in the Friday trade. And you could see uh, off the high now, almost to the tune of 8% from the Nasdaq from those record levels. The pullback also impacting uh, the S&P 500, where you see that makeup of those big tech stocks on the index slide of four tenths of a percent and much more resilient, you have to say, if you take a look at the Dow. Thanks to the performance of the banking stocks, huge trade around those uh, big um, institutional names. Don't forget some of them start reporting later this week. But uh, the trade, if you look at the KBE over the course of the week, we saw a bounce of 8.6%. So very strong trade. And that was a supportive factor over the course of the week for the Dow. In terms of treasuries, we've seen uh, very strong moves there too. Short end, of course, around the repricing. Now the market putting its bets on a March liftoff instead of June around rates 0.87% about uh, 70% chance now, according to Fed funds rate of that March move. And of course, language this week will be closely watched for any further timing for market participants. The 10-year yield, well, we moved higher by about 25 basis points over the course of just one week. So very swift, sharp moves that we see in the bond market. Let me take you to oil and the Kazakhstan story, what we've been watching on some of the geopolitics, having a, a big move for these markets. And you've got to say, we, we perched now, what, $79 almost on WTI, 8183 on Brent. Energy, a very strong component too of the markets last week. The gold price, though, as you can see, just drifting off a little bit, pulling off uh, again away from that 1800 mark. We are dropping at this stage by two tenths of a percent. And the Asia markets in the Monday session, uh, this is how we are trading. Hong Kong is higher, 180-odd points to the upside. That's a strong start. Cosby going the opposite direction in South Korea. As we talk about the tech story, this has been one market. We see a lot of those big-name tech stocks. Shanghai trades up two-tenths of a percent, although we're all closely watching the COVID situation on Omicron in China now. The ASX trades a little bit weaker at this stage in Australia. The opening calls, uh, let's take a look at Europe. I think many were hoping to see a little bit of divergence between European markets and the American markets uh, last week.
the, the European markets and American markets, got to say, uh, were still somewhat closely tied. We had record levels on the stocks Europe 600 at one point, but then a wobble coming into the mix to the point where the index actually lost territory over the course of the week, down a third of a percent. So not as much as what you saw, of course, on some of the big tech uh, indices. But this is how we approached the morning session. We are chasing green arrows right across the board, so a fairly consistent picture that we are chasing. Worth noting, some areas of this market have been more resilient than others, namely the French market to German stocks too last week, where we did see a bounce over the course of the week, uh, almost uh, 1% on French stocks, for instance. Jeff? Yeah, let me just um, pick up and, and um, take a look at a couple of flashes we've got coming in. Uh, we're going to get a lot of this, I think, uh, through the course of the morning as we focus on these discussions in Geneva. But the uh, Russian news agency, RIA or RIA, is commenting on uh, comments that have been attributed to the Russian deputy foreign minister. This is uh, Sergei uh, Rybkov. Uh, he says uh, talks must look at the question of Ukraine not joining NATO. Uh, the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister saying the US and NATO could face a worse situation for their own security if they do not show interest in dialogue with Russia. And of course, this is all part of the positioning on the Russian side going into these discussions here. And I guess, Karen, the interesting thing uh, from our perspective is just how much notice of these discussions and of this kind of saber-rattling the markets are going to take at this stage. It seems that we are so focused on this non-farm payroll story, this uh, federal interest rate story, Federal Reserve interest rate story, that for the time being, I think the markets um, are not terribly focused on this. But I do wonder to what extent we may or may not see any geopolitical risk coming back into markets if the language continues to be very negative around these discussions. Yes, uh, indeed, Jeff. I'm just uh, chasing some other breaking news uh, that's just been crossing, and this is that an Australian court says Djokovic is to be released. And, of course, uh, you were just updating us before about the situation around the tennis player in Australia, given the visa issues that he's been facing, and the latest is that an Australian court says that will he be he is to be released. So we will chase a little bit more news flow when it uh, starts to unfold, and no doubt that will be in a short period of time. Let's move over to the Bitcoin market uh, as we saw the cryptocurrency sliding to 14 $1,000 over the weekend, its lowest level since September, while Ether marked its worst performance since October. The hawkish commentary from the US Fed around interest rates, as well as the political crisis in Kazakhstan, are both putting pressure on the wider cryptocurrency market. Elise Colleen joins us, founder of Stillmark. Elise, we have seen a real risk on risk off trade around cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin. We mentioned a number of factors there, the situation in Kazakhstan, given that it is one of the big mining hubs for Bitcoin, but also the Fed. And we've seen a huge uh, rotation away from some of the big technology names. What's the big, biggest factor here? Do you think it's a twin effect or is it mainly about the Fed, which is why we've seen the price slide south? There's, there's likely multiple contributing factors, but I think the most immediate catalyst was the Federal Reserve's indication that interest rates may be raised ahead of what the market otherwise expected, which led to um, the cryptocurrencies 
um, aggregate market loss of billions of dollars of value, of course. So Bitcoin is down about 40% off of its all-time high, but at the same time, it's exactly where it was a year ago. And so what that means is that on net, 2021 was a year of consolidation around price for Bitcoin. Elise, we've seen some very wild expectations around Bitcoin that it could go south. Some are still calling zero. Others are saying 100,000 by year end. But short term, what are your expectations? Because we still don't feel like we've settled down on the yield. And there is a feeling that if the yield picks up again on interest rate expectations, we could see a slide in Bitcoin below 40,000. Is that a possibility in your view? Short-term expectations are hard here, but it's notable that in this most recent downturn, there was a lack, there was muted liquidations of leveraged positions and open interest remained high, which means that there was the condition for a continued downturn. That's not necessarily what we'll see. It's not necessarily what we expect, but the conditions exist for that to be true. Most notable though, I think is that the market remains very bullish and insiders remain very bullish about the underlying technology. And of course, Bitcoin, the asset, has historically seen price increase as adoption increased. And looking forward to 2022, we expect to see adoption continue its rapid ascent. At least the, the thing that puzzles me is, is whether um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are a hedge against declines in equities and other more traditional assets. Because it seems to me we've only really understood the evolution of Bitcoin in an environment where inflation has been low or falling and central banks have been easing monetary conditions. So there's been lots of liquidity. As we see those conditions change, what ultimately happens to these cryptocurrencies? Are they a hedge or do they go down alongside everything else? Well, so I think first it's important to distinguish Bitcoin from other cryptocurrencies. So they're categorically different. Now, Bitcoin has had 10 years of establishing itself as a store value and a relatively good hedge against a multitude of conditions and other assets. Now, what happened in 2021 is that Bitcoin developed, showed further development beyond store of value to being um, a method of transaction, which doesn't necessarily, um, you know, buttress the price or, um, you know, create increased uh, buy pressure. And so I think that in 2022, we see much of the same Bitcoin continuing to develop as um, a method of transaction, but that will be further accompanied with advanced adoption. So in 2021, El Salvador was the first country to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. In 2022, we may see more of that leading to greater adoption, and that may perhaps um, put upward pressure on the price. Elise, good morning to you. Why is El Salvador such a good marker? You'll have noticed the marches against corruption um, that took place in El Salvador three or four weeks ago as well. Uh, a president who is not allowed under the Constitution to have two terms, but is now going for two terms, having got rid of uh, the Supreme Court judges and changed those round to ones who are affiliated with his own party. Why are you so excited about what's going on in a country such as El Salvador, which ranks in the bottom half of the corruption index globally? 
Well, the reason why I'm so excited is because 70% of the population is underbanked or unbanked. Um, and so Bitcoin's meant for that purpose. Um, but it's important to note that it's a neutral technology. So authoritarians can use Bitcoin, um, activists can use Bitcoin. Oh, I expect that it'll be used, it is used by both. But what's more important, I think, than the leadership in any country that adopts is if Bitcoin can address the needs of the population. And in El Salvador, it certainly has. So we know that in the first quarter of Bitcoin being present as legal tender, that over 3 million Salvadorans used Bitcoin through the Lightning Network, in fact, which meant that more Salvadorans were using Bitcoin via Lightning than had access to the region's banks and that's what's important more so than who's in charge. If for Bitcoin, no one's in charge, um, including a country's president. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.